Welcome to the Catalyst Church Podcast. We're here up in Humboldt County, California. We're glad you're with us. We hope that you're blessed and that you find peace and grace in the Word of God today. So we are in our series in the book of Mark, the Gospel according to Mark. Um, And we've been looking at how Mark has written this account of Jesus, of the life of Jesus, in a way that is meant to cause the reader to then pay attention to what God is doing in the world. And the way that he sets up the gospel in the very beginning, if you could remember that that, uh, back from last February when we started, Mark, we started with the early pages of John the Baptist, and this this priest who kind of neglected and went away from the temple expectations goes out into the wilderness, this man named John, and he's clothed in camel hair, and he's eating locusts and honey, and he's baptizing people in like dirty and unpredictable river water instead of in the safe and sanitized uh, communal baptismal in the temple. He does these things because he wants people to pay attention that God is doing a new thing in the world. And so what we see is Mark is trying to help the reader understand that that the Messiah that is he's writing about didn't necessarily fit the expectations of the people in that time. And Mark wants us to understand as well that the only way to participate in God's kingdom is to recognize God's authority, to submit to God's authority, and to begin paying attention to the life that God created you to live and is inviting us to live. Now, that kind of language of submitting to authority is kind of hard for a lot of us. Like, it's not really valued in our culture. It's not really praised today, submitting to authority throughout the Western world. And I mean, even if you just go to the co-op, if you look in those those little magazine racks, all throughout the glossy pages, what we read are words like, be your own goddess, or discover your bliss, or take charge of your destiny, Right? And while there's some truth in some of those things with like the fact that you are created uniquely by God, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, God has a purpose and a plan for your life, and that that, that you were knit together in your mother's womb. You were created not, though, to follow your bliss or discover your divinity. You were created to love God and to love people and to follow Jesus. And in that way, when you live in this way of following Jesus, of of seeking God's commands, of submitting to the authority and obeying God's commands first, when you live this way, when you surrender everything you are over to God's ways, no matter what trials or hardships, difficulties, grief, pain, joys and triumphs come your way, What happens when you surrender yourself to God's ways? You live in this way of peace that passes understanding that guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That doesn't, I can't give you some sort of scientific equation for why this is true. All I know is that we are created to live like this. And when we live like this, everything else just makes sense. Submission to God's authority through Jesus Christ brings a rooted anchor into every aspect of your life. Submission to God's authority through Jesus Christ brings a rooted anchor into every aspect of your life. And I think it's really interesting 
because I don't I don't look ahead and I, whenever like we figure out what the what passage of Mark we're going to be in next or which passage of scripture that will be in on that Sunday. I don't usually look and see like, well, what's happening in, in the world around us? But it is interesting to see how God kind of maps that out for us, because I think having Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s day tomorrow and what he said and how he lived his life and how he pastored his people really well, I believe that the passage we have today is kind of divinely appointed. So I hope that we'll find that today. So um, come with me to Mark 11. Today's passage of scripture, it brings us like critique on life that is separated from the authority of God. Before we read it, uh, you're welcome to turn there. I want us to remember where we are in Mark. So uh, we are in the last week of Jesus' life before he is killed on the cross. Uh, we started with Monday. We skipped over Sunday because Sunday is that triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem where Jesus rides in on a donkey and to shouts of Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, and he is, um, he is coming in to the most holy city of Israel. It is the city that houses the temple of God. And this is the Sunday before Jesus was killed. And then last week we looked at the Monday and the Tuesday morning. And it's that passage of scripture where Jesus picked a fight with a fig tree and with the temple leaders. And what we looked at is how the fig tree looks like it was supposed to have fruit. Because from a distance, looking at the fig tree, there's, there's leaves on it. And when there's leaves on a fig tree, there has to be fruit. If you look at any fig tree, if there are leaves, you will find fruit. Even if it's not quite edible yet, there's the promise of what's to come. And he went to that fig tree expecting to find fruit, and it was empty. And so he curses that fig tree. But then it's meant to be a likewise pointing out of the temple leaders how they looked like they were supposed to be bearing fruit, how they looked like they were doing God's work, but instead they were just holding up in a building. They were safe from accountability. They were removed from the actual people they were called to serve and lead towards God. So that leads us to today, the the Tuesday mid-morning before Jesus was killed. Jesus was killed, if you don't realize this, Jesus was killed to keep him quiet. He was messing up the status quo. He was rocking the boat too much. He was questioning the motives of the powerful and the religious leaders in charge. He was pointing to the authority back to God, and Jesus knew that there was still a possibility for good fruit to happen in Israel, but he was aggressively questioning and critiquing those in charge of their willingness to tend and harvest the fruit. So all day on Tuesday, this is just one of the portion of scriptures that happens on Tuesday. All day on Tuesday, he, he attacks the present religious system openly and publicly, and the religious leaders are like crawling out of their skin. And we'll see that in a minute. This passage that we're reading is this, is this critique on life that is separated from the authority of God. So let's go to Matthew, or sorry, Mark 11. We'll be uh, in verses 27, and we're going to go all the way to 12, 12. So Jesus and his disciples arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven? 
or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture, this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Ah, it's such an easy passage. Yay. Okay. um, Any thoughts before we go into it? Anything that's coming up? At Bible study, there were like, how many people came to Bible? How many people were at Bible study? I swear, there was like 25 people in my house. It was amazing. It was so, there were so many people. But I know that the the conversation was really rich. It was incredibly thoughtful. Um, I wish I was there. I had to take my son to, or I had to go to a high school meeting because my son will be in high school next year. And that's just crazy. Anyway, I heard it was a great time. But anything come up from the passage that we just read? Yeah, Tamara. I guess to double plug Bible study. Yeah. Mm. Not that I'm having another insight or anything, but I'm much more like able to listen since we went over it so many times. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Cool. Yeah. Oh, were you gonna say something, Marta? Um, I was just really present to how God is working in my life and how I needed to be there. Mm. And I know Yeah. 
Yeah, the, you mentioned the cornerstone, and I think that that's like that's a really important part of this passage that Jesus uses this example of the cornerstone, um, and it comes from Psalm 118, um, where where Jesus well a corner a cornerstone when Jesus says the you know it's being rejected the cornerstone was essentially the plumb line for a building project it was the stone used to measure the rest of the work. So it was a stone in which all the rest of the building was then built around and measured by. It was considered the most important piece to the building. So Jesus uses this psalm to point out that he is the cornerstone. But we don't know that he's actually the cornerstone because he doesn't say it. He never says it here whatsoever that Jesus is the cornerstone. What is interesting to me is that when Jesus arrived into Jerusalem on the donkey, and there's a great crowd shouting, Hosanna. Uh, They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are quoting Psalm 118, the same verse that Jesus then quotes about the cornerstone. And it's this way of having Jesus uh, kind of subversively tuck in the fact that he is the cornerstone that the psalmist was speaking about, that Jesus that, that you know, the crowd made the cornerstone known. The crowd was the one that introduced the cornerstone to these temple leaders who Jesus is talking to. That Jesus is God in flesh. And so to know God, one simply needs to look to Jesus and then follow Jesus. So Jesus, as the cornerstone, as the measurement of life, came to make the Father known. That is what Jesus came to do, and that is what this passage reveals. And I think that Jesus used this passage because Jesus was fully convinced in his own identity as the Father's beloved Son. Jesus was fully convinced in his own authority because of his identity. And then Jesus was very confident in who he was, always pointing back to the Father's ultimate authority. And we see that Jesus was submissive to the authority of God the Father in his life. And so as disciples, we look to Christ as the example of what it looks like to be in relationship with God. Jesus was always pointing the disciples to the Father, and he uses this parable to do it again. Because the people of Israel kept looking to their own human religious leaders as their final authority instead of God the Father as their final authority. People kept looking in the wrong places. And we do the same thing all the time, right? Like we place our faith in our pastor's faith. Don't place your faith in my faith, you guys. It is not a good idea. (laughs) But when pastors mess up or when they harm other people, oftentimes people who follow those pastors begin to wonder about their own belief in God because they've placed their faith in somebody else's faith. We put our trust in our government we put our trust in our in the Pope. We put our trust in Francis Chan or whatever other big sort of religious Franklin Graham or Richard Rohr or other authorities that we believe seem to know what they're talking about or doing. And we study their words and we study their movement 
more than God's word and God's movement sometimes. And I think this parable challenges the idolatry of leadership. It implores us to pay attention to what the Father is up to through the Son, to fix our eyes on God's authority and not on man's. This is why when I see uh, books that are like the new fad, like uh, this was a while ago, but The Purpose Driven Life, I don't know if you all read that, it was super popular and everybody knew that if I read this book, I will finally know what God is up to in my life. Or the, like the, the Secret or something like that, or even, even the Enneagram, we're going to be doing an Enneagram retreat. Anything like these things, these can become distractions to a person's walk in the Lord if a person is approaching these tools or books for all of their answers. Man-made tools must never become the ultimate authority in your life because this becomes a form of idolatry. They can become supplemental to your walk with the Lord, though. They can aid in fixing our eyes on Jesus. But if you're not grounded in your identity as the beloved child of God, it's easy to place your hope in these tools to then discover your identity. It's easy to give authority to the newest and brightest book or app or training, or conference, or pastor, or church, instead of the Father through Jesus Christ. Any thoughts about how we've placed our faith in other things, or other people? Or have you ever experienced this where you're just like, like, you know, I just found out recently, uh, the pastor that I that I follow and I love and I really admire has he has a podcast. So it was very public, but he came out and he said, you know, I I uh, have engaged in a um, in a, an emotional affair with a woman. And I want to be a person that is that is open and honest with the things that are going on in my life and the things that I'm falling short in. And I never want to be the kind of pastor that has to like lock that away so you see me in a certain light. And he's recognizing that it's all stemming from something deeper in his life. But there are many people who place their faith in their pastor's faith or a religious leader's faith instead of in, in, in Christ. Anybody experience this? Oh, we won't talk about that right now, Russ. But I, I think it's a valid question. But maybe we could talk about it afterwards. You said that last I, well, then let's talk. We'll talk afterwards. Stick around afterwards. I'd love to chat. I was thinking about the passage where Paul is is talking to the the church, and he says, "Follow me as I follow Christ." If we don't know who Christ is, then how do we how do we know that Paul is following Christ right? We don't follow Paul. We follow. Christ, but Paul is one that leads us to those places. But we don't know where Paul is, if Paul is, if lead, is leading us correctly if we don't have an understanding of who Christ is in our lives. So we're going to look at the parable from the perspective of authority because Jesus begins his teaching with the chief priests, with the teachers of the law, with the elders in the parable. And I think that Jesus invites us to see ourselves in the story as well. So it's important for us to recognize who each of the players in the parable represents. To know this, we need to look at where the origin of this parable began. So uh, the, the people who, are, who Jesus is talking to know their Bible fully. They understand the Old Testament. They have it memorized. This is, Jesus is speaking to people that if he said something that triggered anything in their mind, they would know exactly where to find that in the Old Testament. And this parable was something that originated in Isaiah. So turn with me to Isaiah 5, please, in the Old Testament. 
It's basically the middle of the Bible. Isaiah 5, and we'll read verses uh, 1 to 7. Isaiah was a prophet of God. He was like a mouthpiece of God. God sent Isaiah to speak truth and guidance over Israel's leaders to point Israel back to God being the ultimate authority over Israel. And so it says here, you all there? Isaiah 5, verse 1, it says, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more can I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it only yield bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So based on this Old Testament passage, Jesus was telling a story about a vineyard named Israel, an owner named God, and tenants that were named as the wealthy and powerful, the chief priests, the religious elites. But before Israel, there was another kind of land that had great potential. There was this garden where shalom abounded. In the garden, there was no sin There was no patriarchy. There was no fear. There were humans who existed in complete and utter love where all things were good and right. There was this unbroken connection with God and with each other. There was an unbroken connection within the self and within the soil of the earth. And God created everything and then gave humanity everything they would need in order to thrive. God was the ultimate authority, and these humans gladly submitted to God's authority because that's how they were created to live. But we know how the story goes. We know how this parable goes, that humans are designed by God to have choice, to have free will. And within that choice, we can either choose to follow God or we can follow something else. And they chose to submit themselves to another authority instead. And we see the same story here that Jesus is telling, where where God called a people and provided them with everything they needed to thrive. God was intentional and purposeful in how God moved. I mean, like an owner of the vineyard, removing the rocks and tilling the soil and planting each vine and fertilizing the soil just right, and creating boundaries and barriers that kept wild animals or anything that might want to disturb or destroy the vineyard out. 
where he built this watchtower, like this other layer of care over the vineyard. He took so much time with it and setting everything up for thriving and for success. The vineyard had everything it needed to produce good fruit. It only needed someone to help prune and water and tend to it so it can continue producing what it was created to produce in the first place. The vineyard needed good leaders who would continue the good work that the owner had started. The owner trusted the tenants. He put them in charge of the work. He trusted they were capable because he saw something in them. He saw something in the tenants. He didn't just like hand over all this long and hard work to a bunch of bozos and be like, hey, this is what I did. Go ahead and have your way with it. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm guessing that these people weren't self-righteous. They weren't corrupt people. He handed this vineyard over to people he believed the best in, and I bet they were trustworthy at one point. When we started this church, we planted it with some friends who deeply desired to see God's to see God glorified in Humboldt County. Some of you remember them. One of the pastors, his name was Dan, and he would preach some of the best sermons I have ever heard. He was honest and he was open about his struggles and his sins, even from the front, like never held back. But his desire to make his name great became like this greater thing in his life than his desire to make God's name great. And I believe that God placed Dan here as a leader because God believed the best about Dan, even though God knows all things to be true in this world. But eventually power corrupted him. And in the midst of our church family falling apart and people's marriages from the church started to crumble apart and people actually started walking away from the Lord. Like not just leaving the church and going to another church, leaving their faith altogether. Dan told us that he would do anything that he could to further his career regardless of the expense of other people. Like the tenants in the story, I don't believe God handed the vineyard over to self-righteous and corrupt people. He handed it over to people who believed that he believed the best in, that God believed they were trustworthy. And I believe they were at one point. I bet the owner, I bet that these tenants saw the owner as the one in charge and the one with authority. The thing with power is that power can quickly corrupt. And the tenants who began as trustworthy, they may have enjoyed uh, the authority that they were receiving from the other tenants around them and the other lands around them. I mean, perhaps they grew in popularity because of how well their vineyard produced for them. Or, or maybe they weren't recognizing the one who prepared the soil and planted it in the first place that was the one who actually had control over all of it. Maybe they were allowing what they had been creating, believing they had created, to actually move them to believe they were worthy of it in the first place. I think Jesus used this parable not as a critique of the vineyard or a belief that the vineyard wasn't useful anymore. I think Jesus used it as a critique of the tenants, of those charged to look after and lead the vineyard. 
The tenants are the religious leaders who God placed over Israel to lead her and guide her towards the authority of God. And some of them did. We read throughout the scriptures how some of them did, but many of them didn't. And so God would send these prophets like Isaiah to speak truth to the temple leaders and to the kings and to the wealthy in charge and to warn them to lead God's people back to the purposes of God. And the purposes of God are ones of justice and compassion and love of neighbor and obedience to God. And again and again, what we read is that these prophets were mistreated. They were run out of town. They were killed by Jewish kings, by the wealthy in charge, by false prophets, and by some religious leaders who couldn't hear the truth of the prophets. The last prophet to be murdered is the one we just read about with John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin. He was considered a prophet, and, and he, was, he was killed by Herod Antipas, who was a Jewish ruler. He was put in charge of the area, and this ruler, this Jewish ruler, is like holding this party and all of his guests are there, and, and his, what is it, his like wife's daughter dances, and he's like so pleased with her dancing that he's like, what would you like, up to half my kingdom? And she's like, I want that guy that keeps speaking insurrection to be killed. I want his head on a platter immediately. And instead of Herod giving the authority back to God and saying, no, 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 that is not the way of the Lord, instead of him stepping into that space, he saves face, He's led by the embarrassment of his guests, and he, and he submits himself to this woman. And he says, yes, let's do that. He kills John. He allows for John's murder to silence God's authority. What we see in this parable is an owner who gives, who has given so many, cha- who gives, sorry, who gives so many chances to the tenants who believes the best about these people that he's put in charge. And so when it comes to sending his beloved son, which is the same language that Mark uses in the beginning when Jesus is baptized and and God says, this is my beloved son, it's the same language that Mark uses during the transfiguration, mentioning that Jesus is the beloved son. And so the beloved son in this story, in this parable, is Jesus Christ. The owner believes the tenants will finally come to their senses. There's this Palestinian practice during this time called ownerless land, where the tenants could have a chance on inheriting the land if there was no owner. If the land they were working on and tending to, if there was no owner to claim that land any longer, then the tenants could then receive that land and take that land as their own inheritance. So to see a a son show up, they would believe that the son was only sent because the father was no longer living. He was dead. So if they could kill the son, then the land would be considered ownerless, and they could then take on the land to rule it, to reign on it, and to finally have the ultimate authority over the land, because the land would then be theirs. They would have claim over it. And this wasn't just an example of unjust behavior. Jesus was wanting to reveal how the tenants, the powerful, the wealthy, these Jewish leaders, how they were calculated in their behavior. And their motivation for killing and taking was greed. They were greedy for the fruit, for the influence, for the power. 
and ultimately for the authority. However, greed is almost always the manifestation of fear. Greed is birthed out of fear. Because when we're afraid that everything will be taken from us, when we're afraid that we won't have enough, when we're afraid that God isn't good and doesn't have our best interest in mind, when we are afraid that our influence and our knowledge and our popularity and our sense of being remembered will be taken from us, when we believe in scarcity, our first response is to take and to keep and to be in charge no matter the cost. And in our fear, greed becomes our authority. Greed was their motivation, and pride kept them from seeing the error of their ways regardless of who God sent. Sometimes this parable has been read with the assumption that Israel was against God and the prophets of God, and is rejecting, uh, and then God is actually rejecting Israel in the process. However, the vineyard is Israel, and the vineyard still belongs to God. The greedy tenants no longer have claim over God's people because God has, has sent God's son as the final authority and leader, and in the process has invited all people to choose to follow Jesus. The parable is not where God has given the vineyard to the church, where the church replaces Israel, as oftentimes some have believed. God has actually grafted the church into Israel. The vineyard can still produce good fruit, and through Jesus, the church has been grafted in. The entire parable is meant to be a critique on the temple, on those who greedily rule in it and through the temple, who who keeps pointing the authority back to the temple. Like, all you need to do is look at the temple and the leaders, and every answer that you ever need will be met in that place. And, and it's been pointing back to itself and asking the people to look to the temple and to look to the leaders for all their needs to be met instead of looking to the ultimate authority being God himself. Jesus came to reveal the Father and to bring people to the kingdom of God where we're not putting our faith and our hope in ourselves or believing that we're divine in some way or that we can manifest our own destiny apart from God, independent from God. Jesus wants his church, Jesus wants his disciples, all of us here, not to find our identity in in a pastor or a megachurch experience. We're not meant to find our sense of authority from the Pope or from the president or from a book or from a tool or from anything else beyond God because we are created to place our faith and our hope in Christ, submitting to the authority of God and then calling our leaders to do the same. Because the temple is still God's, and the tenants are still God's, and you are still God's beloved child. And to believe otherwise is a fallacy. All of these extra places that we can seek God's truth becomes greater bearers of good news. Only when we are first submitted first to God and his authority. Only when we find our sense of our identity as the beloved child of God.